Hello, how you doing? You're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. It's sponsored by Betfair. It's great to have you with us. This is an EFL-flavoured podcast with myself, Ali Maxwell, with him, George Ellick. You right, mate? Hello, mate. I am all right. How are you? Good. Fired up? Yeah, I'm angry. Yes. Well, plenty to talk about from Leagues 1 and 2. Interesting results and, and things to pick through. But first, manager news. Breaking manager news. Watford FC mm. has relieved Rob Edwards of his duties as head coach, replaced by Slaven Bilic. George Ellick. I'm outraged because you know it's not a surprise um, when I saw the story as first reported, I think, by Jason Burt of the Telegraph. You know, the, the initial reaction was dismay rather than shock because you know, if we go back uh, to when Rob Edwards was appointed in the summer, um, firstly, obviously, as a you know, as, as two guys who love um, League One and League Two, it was very exciting to see someone who, in one season at League Two level, had proven himself to be one of the more exciting managers we'd seen there. To see him get rewarded with a job, not just in the Championship, but one of the biggest clubs in the Championship, a club who had just been relegated from the Premier League, was very exciting. Um, and to, to to read the comments and to see. Um, the willingness from Watford apparently to change their normal process of, of, of sacking and hiring and sacking and hiring um, was exciting to see. And, you know, a lot of people said it was nonsense uh, and that, you know, a leopard would never change its spots. I was hoping that they were going to be wrong without having much conviction in doing so. Um, and you had Scott Duxbury, um, who I think he's the CEO at Watford or, you know, one of those titles at the, at the top end um, came out and said, we will be supporting Rob Edwards come hell or high water. Mm. And for, for a club who I think are now, um, you've just appointed their 17th manager since 2002. Um, that was a, a, a bold statement. So to see Edwards sacked on the 26th of September is a real shame. Um, and I think for Edwards himself, yes, I'm sure he, you know, he'd have understood going into the role that, um, words are cheap, talk is cheap, and that this was always a possibility. And yes, he probably will get a, a payout that means that, um, you know, it softens the blow somewhat. I still feel very sorry for him that as a young up-and-coming manager, I think anyone who's promised a lot from their employers and is then sacked um, is, is pretty, is in the best form anyway, so early into a, into a tenure. But what really rankles are two things in my view. Firstly, it's the total disregard at which the fans are being held in. Now, you know, it's very easy as a, as a football podcaster to go on, especially when you know a lot of fans are going to be listening and just try and play into their favour. But in this sense, you know, a lot of Watford fans are pretty spiky about um, the whole idea that they, um, you know, that they were hiring fire uh, a few years ago. And then you had the whole, um, you know, you had the Vladimir Ivich, Cisco Munoz, and then last season, the madness in the Premier League. And, and things have, have kind of accelerated rather than reverted to a normal routine. And this has really begun to frustrate Watford fans, especially after the relegation last season, in which you saw about five different styles of football trying to be played with the same squad over the course of one campaign. And so that, you know, the it felt like the appointment of Edwards was Gino Pozzo listening to the fan base and understanding what they wanted their football club to be and acting accordingly. And that is what is so outrageous about this is because that has lasted in football terms, in terms of the actual season, under two months, where the recruitment in that time or the lack of it, the lack of the ability to strengthen in key areas beyond the retention of, of two key players in Joao Pedro and, and Ismail Assar, 
has left Edwards with a far weaker squad than I think any of us or any Watford fans or Edwards himself would have expected to go into the season with off the back of a uh, after the transfer window. And therefore, this would annoy me if, if Watford were down where, say, Middlesbrough are on the table, this would still annoy me. But the fact is that Watford are one point off the playoffs. They haven't been particularly good to start the season. There have been signs of them being OK, but for the most part, they've been underwhelming. But it doesn't look to me like they're really underperforming where their squad should be, especially when you consider that Saar has had injury issues. We've seen Cleverly have injury issues. We've seen, you know, their players, uh, you know, when we spoke about their need for a, a dominating centre midfielder, Imran Loza hasn't played a, a minute mm. for um, for Edwards yet because of his his um, his knee surgery in the summer. So Edwards has had to deal with injury issues and deal with the fact that the recruitment process in the summer, for which as far as we know with Watford, the head coach has very, very little control of, wasn't good enough. And yet he has paid the price. Just a couple of weeks after, the only other kind of senior footballing staff with a sporting director was seemingly pushed to the sidelines and it was thought that Edwards was going to be given more of a say. From a purely footballing perspective and in terms of Watford's chances of getting promoted this season, replacing Edwards with Bilic, I mean, it probably gives him a better chance of doing so. You know, Bilic is someone who has done this before. He is a gun He's a gun for hire. I'm sure one of two things will happen. He'll either take them up and then get sacked or he won't take them up and he'll get sacked. And he's pretty fine with that. He signed an 18-month deal. But for, for Watford fans to have to face up to losing a man who, in my opinion, was hired off the back of their own requests, somebody who they've absolutely warmed to as a person so far in, in his tenure, who, despite the poor performances, none of them are particularly pointing the finger at him as it being his fault is just incredibly sad and I'm angry on the sake of, on the behalf of Watford fans, and I'm angry on this, on the, uh, for the sake of, of Rob Edwards as well, who I'm sure given there are quite a few uh, championship jobs knocking about at the moment, um, I'd be surprised if his, uh, if his drive from, from Watford uh, back home towards uh, Wolverhampton doesn't have a diversion somewhere in it to go and have a chat to another, another club. They didn't support him through either hell or high water, let alone both of them. I, I mean, the, I reckon they would argue that Ismail Assar and Joao Pedro still being at the club post-transfer window closure represents them hugely supporting Rob Edwards. I think that's a bit of a reach, to be honest, because A, a team is not just two players. As we have seen with those two in the team, they have produced moments of quality, but overall the team hasn't looked particularly joined up, shall we say. Uh, secondly, the sagas that surrounded both of them can only have been distracting for the whole club, for Edwards, his staff, the squad, etc. Uh, and that would be disingenuous to suggest on top of the fact that, as you've alluded to, it's still hard to know exactly how good or not this squad is, but we're leaning towards not that good or not as good as it should be for a club coming down from the Premier League who have, in theory, anyway, parachute payment money to spend. Um, as you say, I also think there's a fair chance Watford improve under Billich. Um, they have been mid table so far in pretty much every which way that you could look at, whether it's results or underlying numbers. Uh, and it's not out of the question that, that Billich is the right fit for the short term. Uh, and, and I wonder what the reaction will be if that proves to be the case. Let's say... Billich takes them on a good run. Let's say they start challenging at the top of the division. It will be very interesting to see how what the response is, A, from within the fan base, B, from 
the likes of us and the media that observe and cover the, the championship. Um, regardless, I, I, I think, well, I, re- I, I want to reflect and add weight to what you have said. The thing that rankles most, which won't change no matter what happens, is, is the arrogance being shown or what I perceive to be arrogance anyway, um, towards the fan base. They knew, they knew the fan base weren't happy and wanted something to cling on to, something new and something different. And they obviously knew that it was something like appointing Rob Edwards and giving it the big end about, about you know, changing their spots, as you're saying. Within months, contradicting yourself, going back against your word, it means nothing. It's worthless at that point. You're making a mockery of, of what you said. Uh, and therefore, it's hard to imagine this fan base becoming more engaged, even if there is a, a good run, even if they start winning games, we shall see. Uh, and then just an arrogance really towards what it is to run a football club and make a football club good. There've been moments in the Pozzo regime. Of course there have been where Watford have been very impressive, have punched above their weight, have done fabulous things in the transfer market over a period of time. That hasn't happened for the last few years. I think it's fair to say uh, they haven't been performing their remit particularly well I wouldn't say and I can never remember who it was whether it was an owner or a sporting director who I had a conversation with four or five years ago and there was a manager that a lot of people thought should have been sacked and wasn't they stuck with him and things turned and things ended up going well and I remember asking them about it and saying yeah how do you how do you stick to your guns and not sack someone when even the fan base is saying a calling for his head and they said well you have to judge yourself and rate yourself and your ability to support the manager and, and try and work out whether you think you have given them the support that they need to do the job that you've hired them to do. And this person felt through the various circumstances, they could understand why the manager who whose team were underperforming was underperforming. And they didn't think he was the most important part of that. They recognized there mm. were other factors at play. And then they said, well, why did we hire this guy? We knew he's going to be good on the training ground. We thought the players would like him. We thought he'd give opportunities to younger players. All three of those things had happened. He was very popular on the training ground. The players loved him. He'd given opportunities to young players. So they recognised that. They, they had a system in place to judge themselves before which they could judge a manager. And I just feel like that doesn't exist at Watford. And I feel like until it does, they're going to be frustrating to follow whether you're us or, or particularly whether you're a fan. So um, that's our reaction uh, to the, the breaking news of Rob Edwards being sacked by Watford. We'd love to hear from you at NTT20pod on Twitter. Um, let's just say, George, or let me say to you, Rob Edwards to Huddersfield, Rob Edwards to Cardiff, Rob Edwards to Rotherham. Do any of those appeal to you? I think Rotherham seems to me to be the best fit in terms of the players they've already got. You know, they've, they've recruited to play um, three at the back with white players and two up front, which is exactly how Edwards likes to play. Um, we know that with his Forest Green side, I think there are similarities between his Forest Green side and, and Paul Warren's Rotherham side, you know, two teams who aren't necessarily that interested in in retention, possession, who look to be incredibly fit, who will press high, uh, who are aggressive um, on and off the ball. Um, and off the back of you know, a couple of quite topsy-turvy years. Um, Rotherham have, of course, a, a very good record in recent times of standing by their manager. I, I do kind of wonder if the one thing that could put Rotherham off is, is maybe the way that Rob Edwards left Forest Green. Um, I wonder if they would be concerned that if Edwards um, continued to build upon the reputation that he he built at Forest Green and, and had a good year at, R- at Rotherham, would they be concerned that he would be eyeing up other jobs again? Maybe. Um, but of the well, three, I think that would be the, the best fit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good problem to have, isn't it? If that does happen. But. Uh, well, it's also quite apt given that their transformational 
inspirational manager has just left them for a team in the league below. Good segue. Rotherham <laughs> are looking for a manager who may or may not be Rob Edwards. In fact, they they probably haven't, you know, might not have even refreshed Twitter for a few hours. They might not even know he's available. And um, that's because Paul Warren has left Rotherham United. He's dropped down a division to become the manager of Derby County. Uh, he leaves Rotherham in eighth in the championship with a game in hand, of course. Uh, and he joins Derby 11th in League One. Let's react to this news, George, because, of course, the, the other aspect to this is Liam Rossinia, as discussed last Monday, was indeed an interim manager uh, and, and, and very much taken literally. He was uh, stood down in order for Derby to poach Warren from the Millers. What do you make of it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think looking at it from a purely, you know, looking at the Derby appointment just as a footballing appointment, it's a very interesting one. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge Paul Warren fan. I felt like I learned a lot about Paul Warren listening to the Moment of Truth podcast. You know, it's important to remember that those pods are very much a PR opportunity um, for those who are on them, whether that's Paul Warren or Carl Robinson. But um, there were a couple of very honest moments from Warren, especially there was one, I think it was an episode kind of four or five where um, Warren basically talks about the fact that he's not a, he's not a tactician. You know, he's not somebody who's, who's a, he's not a student of the game, I think is what he said. Um, and it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that Warren is very much a figurehead for a coaching team. You know, he is someone who is the man manager. You know, he's, his relationship with his players is, is very important. And again, that came across in the podcast. He's someone who's very, very good with the media because he seems like a, a great guy and, and he's popular with the media and he's a good talker and he can express himself well and be the figurehead of his team well. And he's also very good at being the full guy. You know, we've seen him oversee three relegations from Rotherham. We've seen him take charge of Rotherham teams in League One in campaigns that ended in promotion that didn't start too well. So he's he's pretty good at just fronting up and being that person who can take the praise, take the criticism, and let maybe the likes of Richie Barker do most of the, you know, the the, the, ta- the tactical um, on the grass training side of things. So from that point of view, the fact that he's taking those guys with him, I think is important. I think as a management team, they are obviously very successful. And as a fan, I basically can't think of anyone or many people in the EFL who I'd rather be manager of my football team than Paul Warren, purely in the way that he carries himself and the way that he represents the club mm. and the way that he, he clearly feels towards the fans as could be, could be seen by um, the open letter that he wrote to the fans afterwards, which I think any Rotherham fans who were hovering over the snake emoji uh, after reading that um, <laughs> were then were then tweeting tear tear faces, uh, crying faces instead. And what do you make of the fact of him leaving and making the decision to leave the situation at Rotherham, where he is the man, uh, and take over Derby County in their current situation? I think it's no surprise. Um, you know, at the end of the day, yesterday, he's dropping down a division. Yes, Rotherham are currently in eighth position. But Paul Warren, more than anybody else in the world, <laughs> understands where Rotherham's level is and understands um, the task at hand to keep Rotherham being a championship football club. I'm pretty sure he believes, well, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but off the back of what he's done with them before it seems eminently likely to me that if Paul Warren stays at Rotherham, eventually they're probably going to be a League One side again. And that's because of the the you know the, the resources available to them, meaning that they're at a, at a loss to start the season with anyway and the competitive nature of the league. So it's not a surprise. And Derby County are, yes, they are currently still, um, you know, having, a, having transfer restrictions in place as to what they can do. But in terms of the pure size of the club and their natural level is a lot higher. You know, the fact that Derby County's 
transfer restrictions amount to a, a weekly wage of £12,000 a week. I mean, £12,000 a week is an absolutely astronomical League One wage. And that is what they are perceived to be able to, to afford. So, um, yeah, it, it's no surprise to me he's taken the job. I think the, the ceiling uh, and where he could feasibly take Derby with a similar level of success, you know, he'd be taking over a Derby side where if he can do what he's done three times with Rotherham and take them up, um, they will immediately be uh, yeah, probably a top, similar to Sunderland, probably like a, a mid-table to top half championship, championship side on arrival. Mm. And that, then, you know, his aspirations, I'm sure, to manage at the highest level can actually come to pass at his new club. Whereas with, with Rotherham, that would be Ian Holloway, Blackpool star stuff, if he, man- if he managed to do that. So I think some I'm people will have, will have been surprised, partly because the manner in which he has expressed himself incredibly openly and honestly over the last few years, not just in the Moment of Truth podcast, but throughout the last three or four years, you know, phrases such as reluctant manager and I'd happily never do this job again. I didn't want it in the first mm. place. That Those sorts of things have become a big part of how he is perceived, whether or not that's true. I guess we have a pretty good idea of what his actual ambitions are him having made this move. And guess what? It turns out they're pretty similar to every other uh, manager. You know, uh, this this sort of mm. perceived, like, this openness, this honesty, I guess what I'm saying is, doesn't set him apart that much as a football manager as maybe some people would have thought. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And it reminds us that nothing in football is forever. Even the really nice mm. things like Paul Warren being rather a manager and taking them down and being stuck with and taking them back up again and then taking them down and them sticking with him and taking them back up again. Nothing's forever. We should all do well to remember that. But that's why, I mean, on that, you know, the, the, the up and down nature of his time there, I think just looking at this from a Derby fan perspective now for a second. Now I know Derby fans are, are very excited about this, that they've hired someone who's done what they're trying to do this season or, or, or relatively soon um, in, getting out of the league three times. I mean, there's a couple of points I wanted to make and I kind of tweeted about it as well. Like, firstly, I am fairly sure that it, if Paul Warren's career at Rotherham happened at basically any other club in the EFL, bar a couple, probably including Derby, he'd have been sacked probably five times, right? So like, it's very rare for a manager to oversee a relegation campaign and not get sacked. So that's three. Then you've got the very poor start to the season the season before they went up the last time. So the, the second promotion season where they started the season really poorly and had a lot of Rotherham fans not happy with the way that they started the season. That's four. And then, I mean, there have been other issues at times, but also last season we saw, I'm not suggesting for a second he got sat this time, but last season when they went very far clear and then the poor run came and they were dragged back into the, the mix with MK Dons and, um, and uh, Wigan. We saw a lot of Rotherham fans again saying, he pointed the finger at Warren and saying it was too predictable. You know, his time there wasn't without issue. And, you know, the reason why he was able to get three promotions was because he had the opportunity that no managers really get where he got the opportunity three times to take them back up again. So there is that slight caveat here where, yes, he was a brilliant manager for them and he's left them in a way better position. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. But in the cutthroat nature of football, especially when we're talking about the, the Rob Edwards situation, Rotherham deserve credit for him being able to, to take them to where, where he did because a lot of other clubs would have let that happen. Secondly, you've got the playing style. And this is where I've got my biggest issue with the appointment. Because um, Rossini came in in the summer, took over from Rooney. Derby under Rooney were a very, very high-pressing side. You know, they, they ran a lot off the ball. 
Um, sometimes we saw it being quite possession heavy towards the end. It wasn't really, it was just aggressive, uh, possibly because of the players they had at their disposal. And Rossinho has completely changed the style of play. So this season they are the second highest possession uh, percentage team in the in the league behind Ipswich. Um, I think they've got the the most 10 pass sequences according to Opta in, in the league so far. It's very possession heavy. It's not particularly high pressed. You know, they sit off teams quite a lot, I think, because of the probably the, the older nature of their of their squad as well. Um, it is, and, and a lot of the criticism coming from Derby fans has been, um, you know, the fact that Cashin and Davis and now Chester in the last game because they switched to three at the back, um, and Will, Will Smith are basically the, the four players who touched the ball the most. It's a lot of deep ball retention. That is, that just couldn't be more different to what Warren and his coaching staff have done in the past at Rotherham. You know, they are not interested in keeping the ball, unbelievably aggressive off the ball where they can be, unless they're ahead, in which case they're happy to set off. They're their teams have been made of, uh, for the most part, older players or kind of young, tenacious, aggressive players on the way up. At, at Derby, you've got technically gifted young players and then Jason Knight, of course, who is a press machine. But then players like Conor Harrahan and David McGoldrick and you know, advanced players who you wouldn't necessarily associate with being the most energetic off the ball. So even if things do get better long term, and I'm sure that Warren if he's given time, will make Derby into a very good side. I really think there could be some teething issues here where he's coming into a side at the end of September playing a, a totally different style. So either they they don't do what they're used to doing and they don't try and change it, which would be pretty risky because he's, they've never had success playing the way they're playing at the moment, or they have to tear it up and start again mm. two months into a season when, in my opinion, Derby have been probably better than I thought they would be under a senior in terms of performances and, and results. But isn't the isn't the key name that hasn't been mentioned yet actually Richie Barker? Given that he's the the tactical the tactical mastermind behind the Paul Warren Rotherham side, it is worth pointing out Rotherham have knocked it short from goal kicks a fair bit this season, which was a. I mean, fans were rubbing their eyes when that started. They'd never seen anything quite like it. But um, they did add a couple more technically proficient centre backs in Humphreys and in in Grant Hall as well. Uh, and they have added, they had added a little bit more of that to their game in the last few weeks, Rotherham. Uh, I wonder whether that was Warren slash Barker just <laughs> giving it a go, just seeing how yeah. it felt, seeing if maybe they could prove that they wouldn't, they weren't just going to shell it. Uh, interesting. Anyway, I, I would like to know. Not that we ever will. What the if there is a set remit uh, from from the Derby ownership for Warren and Barker? Is it promotion this season? That would be pretty extreme, quite lively. That would that would concern me. I think I I don't I do not expect Derby to win promotion from League One this season. I think they are currently a level below, uh, maybe two levels below in my head. The the top three, four, five teams and three or four teams in League One, and I do think they can certainly improve. But I don't know if. I just think they're going to be a bit too far behind. So I hope that won't be a problem for, for Paul Warren. Uh, I don't think his appointment guarantees anything for Derby. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes. I just think that personal link between him and, and Rotherham United was quite a big factor uh, in, in what had happened in the good times. Um, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, style of play and squad question marks here. And even in them winning promotion last season, that blip towards the end of last season was one big blip too many for me and was a bit of a red flag when it came to his management, whether it's a personality thing, a demeanor thing, a tactical thing, whatever it is, those spells where Warren and his team appear to just lose their grip on things slightly. It happened in the 1920 season. They started poorly, didn't they? They actually, before COVID hit, they were on, uh, they'd won one in five. I think they weren't in great form. I went up on points per game 
in, in 2021 in the championship, they were in a brilliant position to stay up and they didn't. They threw away a ton of great opportunities to, to get the, the one win that would have helped them stay up, um, albeit they did have a very tough fixture list. Uh, and then obviously last season, they were nine points clear and then only won two of their next nine to make it very, very stressful indeed. So um, loads of things to think about here. Uh, Rotherham obviously looking for a new manager. We spoke about Rob Edwards earlier. There isn't a strong favourite at the moment. Currently at the top of the, of the bookies odds is Dean Holden, um, Paul Hurst, Gareth Ainsworth, Mark Bonner, Matt Taylor. So it seems like uh, no leaks so far. No one's quite sure which way they'll be going. Uh, I think leaving aside Rob Edwards personally, my first choice would be Matt Taylor of Exeter. We'll get into his team shortly. Shall we talk about some football? Mm, yes, please. I'd love to. Uh, League One was perfect, really. The perfect international break slate because there were only eight games in it, but there were no draws. So eight winners, eight losers. Uh, I'll start with Good Cop and it's Plymouth Argyle. Well, more specifically, Plymouth Argyle 2, Ipswich Town 1. The football match, <laughs> the experience. Uh, live on the telly, Sunday lunchtime. I absolutely loved it. I just like It's one of the most I've enjoyed watching a football match on television for a long time. And we had high hopes for it. We felt this; these were two very competitive teams, good teams who were going to go at it, have a have a, a real ding-dong. And it was exactly that, a very enjoyable, entertaining game of football between two teams that were trying to win it. Uh, it sounds like such a simple equation, but it doesn't happen as often as I'd like, and it brought me great joy. It was already a good game at nil-nil, um, openings for both sides early on. Then Ipswich took the lead. Freddie Ladapo finally getting his first goal of the season. And of course, it had to be him against his former club. Uh, best part of this goal was, George, the very, very rare, but highly entertaining uh, opposition team cheering a defensive block, mm. not realising that the ball's looping into the <laughs> corner. Uh, the, the, most, the most amazing example of this, if you've not seen it, listener was Adam Reach's goal for Sheffield Wednesday against Leeds United a few years ago where he hits the ball in such a weird boomerang way that at first it genuinely looks like it's going 20 yards over the bar and the Leeds fans go way and then you just hear the Sheffield Wednesday fans going absolutely bonkers uh, very exciting and then of course Argyle came roaring back in the second half um, George that was a, a pretty exciting football match it's an amazing game I loved watching it um two teams playing it the right playing the right way i was really impressed with argyle um i thought they were the better team in the first half um and it was unfortunate you know the way that ladapo scored as you mentioned there um, i think it rico ricocheted off him into the into scar and then back onto ladapo and then into the back of the net um and but in the second half i thought um our gods have a lot of credit um you know you spoke up um or you talked up Bali Mumba uh, on last Monday's podcast and he put in such a great display um a, a few Ipswich fans might say that he should have been sent off I thought the Sam Morsi challenge in the first half was was a far more more blatant red card uh, where there seemed to be no intent at all to play the ball I think with Mumba there was enough jeopardy there to suggest he he could have been trying to make a block even though the studs um did catch him. Uh, but in the second half, yeah, Mumba was superb. Whitaker, I remember the two goal scorers, probably the, the pick of the players. Um, so you, you and... um, uh, this is obviously not a betting show, but you had backed uh, Morgan Whitaker to score and you were very happy when he did so. He came close a few times. What was it about Whitaker that, that caught your eye out of interest? He's, he's obviously on loan from Swans. There'll be some Swans fans listening and, and wondering how he's getting on there. I think that when Ennis plays up front, 
he Whitaker basically becomes the biggest goal threat because you've got Whitaker and Mayer playing as tens behind um, behind Ennis and Ennis. Unlike Hardy, Ennis is much more likely to run the channels and basically be a nuisance up front. And even though he does score goals, I wouldn't say he's now an out goal scorer. Um, so my in my mind, it kind of almost becomes a, a a bit of a different shape with the two tens with with Whitaker playing more advanced. And he had you know he had two very good chances before he scored. He definitely scored the the hardest of the three. Um, and he's a player who I think is you know he's, he's another just brilliant addition um, to the, of a of a summer where recruitment's getting harder and harder. Argyle's summer has been um, phenomenal in terms of the players they brought in. You know, Mumba being one of them, uh, Finazaz uh, being another who missed the game yesterday. But it's just the the way that the Argyle play, like some of the football they play to, to to create the openings. There are a couple of unbelievable moments in the first half. Um, just really intricate passing football to break down an Ipswich, an Ipswich side who've been so good defensively so far this season. I think we've learned a lot about Ipswich the last week or so. Um, you know, there's no shame at all picking up just one point away from home against Wednesday and um, and Plymouth Argyle. Uh, they host Portsmouth on, on the weekend. Um, but I do think any illusions that the Ipswich, fa- Ipswich fans themselves had or possibly just EFL onlookers had that Town were going to run away with it, um, you know, they had a very easy start to the season. And I think that that was played a big part in their very, very good start. And um, we're now seeing that maybe they aren't miles clear of, of the teams around them, uh, even if the bookmaker odds still suggest that they are. So, um, but they, I mean, they were okay here. And, you know, Walton went very close to, to getting an equaliser. The keeper, a former Plymouth Argyle season ticket holder, uh, going up for in the 96th minute and leaping like a salmon and, wow. and hitting a, a lovely header onto the crossbar, which would have caused a, a pretty dramatic end and would have frustrated me losing to a keeper for my last goal scorer bet. Um, but it, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a brilliant advert for League One. I think it was a, a game where both Kieran McKenna and and um, Stephen Schumacher really showed themselves for the really bright young coaches that they are. Mm. And um, and yeah, I'm as an Argyle, um, you know, somebody who, who loves watching them this season and is so impressed with what they're doing. It's probably the game where they have to be taken seriously as one of the best teams in the division. Uh, I, I don't see how you can't do that now, given how, especially at home, how strong their form is. Can we get down to home park, please? I've been saying yes. to you for many months, many years, and it hasn't happened. We need to sort that out. A few more just little bits for me on this. You mentioned Barley Mumba. I'm going to mention him as well. Just pure silk, isn't he? Pure quality on the ball. There was a moment, I think, in the first half where he he turned Jackson and, and went round him twice within about five seconds. It was so good. His goal was brilliant because, you know, that, it, was a, it was a shot from range from outside the box. It, it doesn't look like a spectacular goal, but I think it's the fact that he gets the shot off so quickly where others would still be winding up or, or getting the ball out of their feet. I think that's what, what beat Walton, basically, because Walton is a brilliant keeper, as is Cooper, mm. by the way, in the Argyle goal. We saw two of the best goalkeepers outside the Premier League. Um, really exciting both still, I mean, Cooper younger than Walton, but both still pretty young. Um, and I think it was that it was that swiftness of shot uh, from Mumba that that was what beat Walton. Uh, and that matchup, Barley Mumba against Caden Jackson, it, it was as close as it was as close. I know I keep bringing up basketball. It was as close to a basketball like one on one game within a football match I think I've ever seen. It was clear that Jackson was chosen to play there uh, in the absence of Wes Burns for mumba type reasons and and by that i mean in order to have 
the physicality to get up and down and stick with him because they know that Mumba's such a big threat. But also because in possession, Jackson was pretty much the highest player for Ipswich. He was constantly trying to break in behind and had quite a lot of joy doing that. And I wanted to make sure that people don't just see me as a fanboy that only brings up the good stuff because Mumba defensively, not great in this game not great in this game, at least two um, occasions where he was too, he was behind the defensive line. He was not in line with his defence and Ipswich got chances from that. I think the goal, he was the deepest defender, um, wasn't quick enough to, to get back up. So, um, you know, something to work on for sure for, for Mumba, but boy, do I enjoy watching him. Uh, and and just lastly on Argyle and Schumacher, uh, just going to keep blowing some more smoke, really. They have played Plymouth Argyle, Barnsley, Derby and Peterborough the three relegated championship teams. They've played Portsmouth and Ipswich back-to-back and taken four points. They've played Oxford and Charlton too, two of the bigger hitters in the division, albeit not uh, particularly high-performing this season. Um, And I just think that really needs to be uh, understood, just Mm. makes that start and that points total doubly important. Let's move on from that game. What a cracker it was. Have you got a League One bad cop for me? Yeah, bad cop in League One has to be Forest Green, um, who were... In the other game, uh, live on Sky, uh, the early game on Saturday, were, were dispatched 4-0 by Exeter. Um, you know, Exeter are, are, were great on the day uh, and all credit to them and, and Giovanni Brown um, getting a hat-trick. It feels like Giovanni Brown only scores hat-tricks, really. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the 4-0 was was comfortable. Uh, Sam Nombe with the with the first um, after good play from Brown and Brown with a couple of penalties and, and a goal uh, in between the two as well. But... but Forest Green were just completely abject in the whole game. Um, they gave away two pretty poor penalties. They failed to create much of note. They kind of had a fair amount of possession without really doing anything with it. Um, you know, I was, and I still am, you know, I, I think Birchnell has something about him. But in the last uh, week, Forest Green had two home games against Morecambe and, and Exeter. And to come away from those games, conceding six goals and scoring just one and, and picking up zero points is... Um, massive alarm bells here and uh, I think if right now Forest Green looked to me to be um, one of the favourites relegation I think if you know the, the two poorest teams right now look to me to be to be more common Forest Green um, so yeah tough times for them and with their former manager suddenly on the market I, I've got a feeling if they um, if Dale Vince was happy to bury the hatchet and uh, <laughs> and give Rob Edwards a call I think Rob would say uh, thank you but no thank you yeah very confident display from Exeter wasn't it and and I'm not going to put it in my much-needed category because their start to the season was so good, but they had lost to Cheltenham, Shrewsbury and Burton in the last four or five weeks. So this was a great win just to get some of that early season confidence back and, and remind themselves that, yes, that they, they all being well, should be absolutely fine at this level and, and capable of, of even better than that. Central midfield two for Exeter, Harper Collins. They just read the game so well. Well done. Thanks. And just Giovanni really enjoyed the goalie, McGee, trying to get in his head uh, just before he took that penalty. Giovanni just smiling at him. And it's just, it's that not everyone could do that and pull it off because not everyone can have the bravado and the confidence in a moment of great stress and pressure to smile and for it to look legitimate. Thankfully, Giovanni is comfortably one of the coolest players in the EFL. And I just love it so much because it's, it is one thing that a goalkeeper can really do if they're bold enough and brave enough to 
to genuinely put more pressure to, to, to make it less likely that player is going to score a penalty or a certain type of player who doesn't take that sort of stuff well. And Giovanni in one smile just completely flipped it and then put it perfectly in the corner. A great win for Exeter. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday, three, Wickham, one. George, uh, not hugely comfortable for Wednesday, I thought, but certainly deserved. And they were one up after 30 seconds. An absolute thing of beauty from Marvin Johnson across from the, from the deep left-hand side, which perfectly curled around the back of the defensive line. And uh, Joe Jacobson just getting himself in a right muddle at the, at the far post and, and scoring an own goal. Uh, then Wickham came straight back in it. And, and we always bring up Anis Mehmeti. And I promise you, it's not lazy analysis. He's doing things that are not mm. normal. And and this may be more than than anything he's done this season. The unbelievable trickery to unfortunately retire Ben Hennigan, who's not allowed to play professional football after what Mometi did to him, and to get it to the byline and cut it back for folks to finish was brilliant. But uh, overall, George Wednesday coming back into it, scoring the second goal, which I think showed you know why Michael Smith is so good when he's so good uh, because he's big and he did the traditional target man hold up play he, he gave the ball to Gregory but he's got this really nice quite unusual love of peeling wide as well and running into space in the channels and delivering crosses saw it for Rotherham last season where he got like four or five assists from crosses and he did the same here um, setting up Bannon for the second goal so I love that about Smith kind of refuses to be pigeonholed you get some target men or big lads up front who don't really like the physical stuff but he loves that and he loves you know being a sort of a free, a young puppy and running into channels as well. And he did one brilliant piece of defending at the back post early in the game from a set piece, which is always an underrated and bonus aspect of having a, a big man up top when they can get back and defend um, set pieces. Uh, how, what do you make of Wednesday at the moment? I noticed that uh, compared to last season, they had 15 points from 10 games this season, 20 points. They'd only scored 10 in their first 10 last season. It's 20 goals in their first 10 this season. And they've conceded one more than this time last season. So just, just focusing on that, very clear to see that they are in, in pretty good shape, albeit maybe not absolutely purring just yet. I think they've had some tough games as well. Uh, if you're looking at their fixtures so far, they've had Pompey at home. Uh, they've had Ipswich at home. They took a point from each of those. Uh, they lost, of course, to Barnsley, but that's three of the top five currently. Uh, they've played at home and then away from home, they've gone to Bolton uh, and they've gone to, to Posh. So um, the fixtures haven't been particularly kind to them. It probably makes their start even more impressive. Uh, and I was probably a bit more taken with their performance against Wickham than you were. I think whenever you go ahead after a minute, it's always quite a weird game because, um, you know, everything you've worked on all week suddenly has to change a little bit. Um, and I guess when Mehmeti put, um, not long after, um, with, his, with his magic feet, um, put the ball on the plate for, for Wickham's second goal, um, I thought they were then by far the best team for the rest of the first half. And then the, the second half kind of fizzled out without too much happening. Um so good value for the win, uh, even if not particularly spectacular, but from 2-1 up, they controlled the game pretty well before uh, making it safe in the 96th minute. So, um, yeah, a, a pretty regulation home win. Uh, I guess the maybe the team to point out here where is it's time to start worrying about them is, is Wickham, who uh, have been pretty poor so far this season in terms of of results that the data doesn't stack up too well. They've got a negative expected goals ratio. Um, you know, it doesn't feel quite as... As as gasbally as um, as maybe we'd we'd come to to think, not quite as effective. You know, we, we always think of them when they're good as being very hard to break down, but at the moment, teams find seem to find it pretty easy to score against them. Um, so, yes, just a slight after such a good season last season after relegation, which is when I thought they might struggle. Um, yeah, things not looking particularly positive at, at, at Wickham. 
the third worst open play XG conceded in the league for Wickham. So mm. you're absolutely right. They do not look like that team from two, three years ago. Um, and, and maybe there's an aspect of, of having very fair excuses for that because that was, uh, as was made clear at any given moment, massively punching above their weight, even to be at the top end of League One, let alone in the Championship. And, you know, is there a sense of sort of uh, one's natural level uh, having quite a strong gravitational pull? I, I don't know, but it's obviously clear when you look at the teams at the top of this division uh, that Wickham are not able to attract quite the same uh, calibre caliber of individual and have to box very, very smart in recruitment. That's hard to do consistently over the, over a long period of time. Uh, Barnsley three, Charlton one. Barnsley going well. Uh, only four shots on target all game here. All of them went in. Uh, uh, I think this was probably best summed up by Barnsley just taking their chances. I mean, can you say taking their chances when the first goal was an absolute thunderbolt from Benson from 30 I mean, you'd have been screaming at him not to shoot from there. There was nothing yeah. on. He had time on the ball. He could have picked a pass, try and progress the ball. You'd have been in the stands going, going like, Benson, Benson, Jesus Christ, Benson. <laughs> yeah, well done. What year are we in? 2012? Um, it was a great hit, though. Um, mm. you know, and in a game where um, I think Charlton fans were pretty frustrated by their own um, Ooh, finishing. Turned. I mean, it's lucky for them they've got a, a nice, easy home game on Saturday against Oxford. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, they, their finishing was, was was very poor. They had enough chances, especially when they were 1-0 down um, to, to get themselves back into the game. Um, I don't think, just on pure purely in terms of, of the way the game went, I don't think Barnsley were, were miles clear of them. They just took their chances when they came. Um, a really good bit of kind of wing play from Devante Cole to set up the, the Norwood flick for the second and then Cole himself, um, probably the best player on the pitch on the day, continuing his good start to the season. I'm going to be back um, up here and say the defending for the 2-0 and 3-0 goals about as bad as I've ever seen at this level. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you've got to give Cole credit either way though for the, for the run and the ball in. Um, so yeah, you know, good from them. Uh, Raksak, he still looks very lively for, um, for Charlton. He was the, the bright spark for them. Um, but yeah, Charlton not enjoying the best start to the season. It'll be a really interesting game between, between, yeah, probably the two teams along with MK who've started the season so poorly, um, mm. between Oxford and, and Charlton on Saturday. And we're going to be there for the not very happy mm. derby at the Valley. Yes. So I've got quite a lot of thoughts about Charlton, uh, at the moment, which I think I'm going to save for next week, just because we're going to have been there and I can, you know, we'll have been on the ground. We can, we'll be able to smell it. We'll be able to smell it. Um, but yes, that there are quite a few issues. The fans seem to be turning, uh, and I'd like to to pick through those maybe next Monday, depending on what happens in that game. Where and I'd rather just focus on on Barnsley and on one of our favourite managers, Mike Duff, who, who feels like he's doing quite Mike Duff things in that uh, he took over a, a team in some turmoil now obviously you have to remember that dropping down level means that they were expected to be strong for the level or to have a squad that was strong for the level but certainly a lot of turmoil off the pitch I think that's still fair to say but mm. just like he did when he went into Cheltenham just getting to work I, I'm seeing a clear progression a plan I think he's pretty much started with the out of possession stuff where they look very good and they got good pressing numbers in terms of high turnovers uh, and, and and good shape, not an irresistible attacking force by any means at the moment, but, um, you know, kind of turning around the ship, I would say Duff is, while also picking up a very good points return. That's very impressive and not always easy to do, I don't think. So he's uh, mm. certainly um, 
that the locals are enjoying a bit of Mike Duff and why wouldn't they? Morecambe 1, Cambridge 2, uh, I thought was a, an easy one to frame as, a, as Mark Bonham masterclass here because uh, Harvey Nibs dropped or rotated out for Jack Lancaster, who I've mentioned a couple of times on the pod. He's had a couple of nice moments, sort of game impacting moments off the bench this season, but this was his first start in the league, brought in for Nibs. Uh, Lancaster scores the first and Nibs comes off the bench to win it for, for Cambridge having been 1-0 down. So um, really impressive stuff. They conceded basically from their own corner, Cambridge, when when Morecambe were 1-0 up 20 seconds after Cambridge took a corner. Jensen Weir with a good finish, but no mm. question at all who the better side was here. Um, the highlights I watched, I enjoyed the performance of Ironside, some of his hold-up play and pivot play is really important. And... The others around him just just get a lot of chances because of it. Lancaster, Nibs, Smith on the other side, um, enjoying the performances of Shiloh Tracy in flashes this season as well. So Bonner's getting a lot out of them. And there was something I saw in this game that I looked into a bit deeper, uh, which I think is worth bringing up when it comes to Cambridge. I don't want to give their game plan away. But one thing they're doing unbelievably well is is, is getting very good opportunities from uh crosses basically from wide from wide areas if you watch both of these goals back you'll see how similar they were albeit on on opposite sides of the pitch one of them left side cross iron side occupying defenders smith occupying defenders and then that sort of second striker who has been nibs and in this instance was lancaster they're able to pick up some quite interesting positions in the box where they're kind of they're not the first or second man to be keeping an eye on and lancaster finished well and then nibs did exactly the same thing playing in the similar role uh, in the second half when he came in i watched all of their goals back this season and it's amazing how many of them are coming from these sorts of situations where the ball is worked to an area where it can be delivered generally down the left side where they've got Brophy and Dunk who both have really good delivery. And you'll notice there's always Ironside, Smith, the second striker, Nibs or Lancaster, and normally Digby as well, who's quite a big lad, centre midfielder. He likes to get into the box as well. He's already scored one header from these situations as well. So next time you watch Cambridge, keep an eye out for that. It's something that they're doing really, really well, really, really effective. And, you know, it's another example of Bonner doing good work so Cambridge uh, good three points after a, a fairly iffy couple of weeks uh, big win for Peterborough George after their losing streak they dispatched Vale 3-0 at home yeah I'm a very impressive in doing so um, I thought they were were good value for the 3-0 win a uh, great to see Kwame Poku uh, with two assists even if the first was uh, like a two-yard pass uh, in, in the area after a good bit of pressing um, interesting to see that, you know, after the really poor performances that we spoke about last week, um, McCann changed it up a bit, changed from the two up front with Marriott and, and Clark Harris and played, played to either side of, uh, of of Clark Harris with Jade Jones and and Poku, which worked. They were far more of a threat going forward after those kind of two-third displays. Um, and it felt to me like Clark Harris relished playing in that role, kind of having two players either side of him to to you know, in terms of the, the delivery they provided, um, he looked very, very lively. So, yeah, a, a much-deserved win for them, uh, for Port Vale. It's you know, no, no shame. They've had a good start to the season so far, um, but they were unfortunate to come up against a rejuvenated and very good posh side. Who, if they continue to play like that, will have no uh, issues, you know, consigning the, that poor form to the past. Yeah, uh, I gather that posh very targeted their recruitment towards playing 4-3-3 that's obviously or at least I assume has come from McCann because that's the formation he played in winning promotion with Hull Posh have obviously done some pretty good things with the three at the back system in the last two years but um, they started the first game of the season 4-3-3 switched at half time against Cheltenham came roaring back and won stuck with that until I think um, last weekend and, and now they've changed back it's interesting because 
there are definitely like there are some players in this team who I think are really suited by 4-3-3, Poku being one of them. And if they stick with that, I'm really excited about what Poku could do if he gets a run in the team because I think he looks excellent. But there's other players like, you know, they played Ward and Burrows at, at right back and left back in this game. I think that's fine for this match. But against a top team, would you want Ward and Burrows as your fullbacks in a four? Probably not. If you bring in Nathan Thompson, let's say, instead of Ward, then you lose that attacking output that Ward brings. And I don't think he's quite as good on the right of a, of a, of a three up top. So it's a difficult one for McCann. I think there's like, they might've recruited for this system, but I still think there are whichever one he chooses. There are going to be square pegs and round holes. It's an interesting one. Uh, Shrews beat Burton two one. Um, and this was, yeah, good performance from uh, Sadie. Who's 20 year old attacker on loan from Bournemouth looking really bright up front for, for Shrewsbury. And if he can um, continue that, well, that'll be a huge boon for them because the number nine position's clearly been a problem for them this season. Uh, last season, they had the likes of Dan Udo that really stepped up to the plate, but he's been out. Uh, and uh, and Bowman uh, doesn't guarantee much of a goals return, I think it's fair to say, in League One. So Sadie's brightness has been really uh, interesting, exciting for me. And Carl Winchester as well. I always forget that Shrews picked, picked him up from Sunderland because I think he'll be a great addition. He started the last two league games, his first starts for them. Uh, and again, another player that I just see raising their level um winchester and leahy in front of a back three just pretty much guarantees a certain level of solidity and leahy and winchester both super comfortable on the ball as well so uh, i'm kind of just seeing like tiny tiny progressions with shrews i was interested to see that um well morosi made seven saves in this game we should point that out so he was a big reason why they won this game and our favorite tom bayliss had a big game as well he he won the flick on which set up their first goal and then a brilliant pass to to sort of open up the defence ahead of uh, their winning goal, which was scored by Bowman from a Shipley uh, square ball. But I noticed on Twitter that the uh, B and A fanzine, Blue and Amber fanzine, Shrews fan, Twitter account and fanzine, uh, they've done a sort of 10 games in survey type thing on Twitter. And I thought it'd be good to, to kind of present their main findings for the listeners of the pod to get an idea of how Shrews fans are feeling because they're in ninth position after 10 games, which evidently is, is a great position for them to be in. Uh, one of the questions is rate Shrewsbury start to the season out of 10. Now they're most, mostly sevens and eights, but there's a lot of this people basically splitting the question uninvited and saying league position eight entertainment four. That's a direct quote from one. Another one, performance-wise, it's a five. Results, it's an eight. Eight out of 10 for league position, four out of 10 for actual performances, seven for where we are in the league, but it's such percentage football. And, and this has been the discussion around Shrews, certainly in the bad times. But interestingly, even in the kind of good times, George, I thought it's often said that fans are very fickle when it comes to style of play, i.e. when they're winning, they don't really care how it looks. But as soon as they start losing, suddenly style becomes a huge sticking point. It seems like Shrews, even in winning or doing quite well, still not that happy with the style of play, which is uh, quite interesting. And not a bad surprise. I mean, I think even though we can give them credit for winning this game, you mentioned Morosi's seven saves. I mean, Burton were very good here um, and, and that, that will play into it. It feels like with Shrewsbury, even when they win, uh, it feels like their opponents have a lot of the game. And that's not to say that Shrewsbury aren't solid because they are. It's more in terms of territory and chance creation. It's, it's basically impossible to see how Shrewsbury can, you know, win a game comfortably, control it and, and not invite some pressure onto them because of the 
pragmatic, you know, it's always the polite way we say it, the pragmatic side of play. Um, and, and, you know, it, it works fairly well for them. They're, they're currently very happily in mid-table. Um, they're winning games fairly consistently. Um, but I'm sure if you're a Shrewsbury fan and you come away from a 2-1 win at home to the team rooted to the bottom of the of the league, and you've been outshot 17 to six and your keeper's man of the match, you're probably going to say, well, that's not, it's not really the way we want to go about winning our games of football. So yeah, it's not a massive surprise to me. Um, but we are in September. I'm pretty sure if Shrewsbury are still, you know, a top half side come um, February or March with, with a, with a shot of getting in, in towards the playoffs and the, the blueprint for success is still the same. Um, any grumblings about the, uh, about the style will probably be no longer. Yeah, I will also say that in case anyone is interested in the individuals involved, uh, fans uh, polled on uh, basically the best players and the best signings of the summer. Uh, and from what the Shrews fans saying, Shay Dunkley, very popular, winning everything defensively as we expect and, and not being asked to do a huge amount of progressive passing, which is, is probably just as well. Bayless, of course, has, has stood out with that extra bit of quality. But in terms of the old guard, Pennington at the back, consistent performances from him uh, and, and someone who's you know, really proving himself to be at the very least a very good League One defender, obviously having come through at Everton where he probably would have had more lofty aspirations of that and still has plenty of time to achieve that. And then Marco Morosi in goal, you know, up there, possibly not quite as spectacular as a, as a Cooper or a Walton, but got to be right up there in terms of League One goalkeepers. Our last game in, in League One to talk about was Bristol Rovers nil, Accrington 1, Joey Barton and John Coleman sharing a warm embrace before this one. Uh, and, and just at the point where we realised... Aki hadn't started as well as they normally do. They've cracked out two wins in a row, beating Cheltenham and now Bristol Rovers to give themselves a bit of a bit more breathing room. Um, the best part of this is surely the fact that Accrington playing 4-4-2, which as Barton has been on record as saying, doesn't take you where you need to get to, but currently doesn't seem to have any answers to it himself. Um, <laughs> Tommy Lee and, uh, and Pritchard were very good. Uh, as the front two. Lee probably producing the, the best moment of the match with a brilliant curled pass to set up Pritchard, Pritchard rather in the first Richard. half, which he, which he missed. Richard um, Pritchard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Cliff Pritchard. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, Pritchard made up for that by, by scoring the winner. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, you talk about quirks of, um, you know, in football when you can hear the fans cheering a, a clearance that actually goes in. I like it when you're watching the highlights package and you're like, oh, they haven't cut away from the chance. And then it rolls straight in because Pritchard himself uh, had, a, I think, a header tipped over the bar. It was a corner and it just kept looking at Pritchard and suddenly yeah. a short corner was played, clipped into him and he basically got up and nodded at home. So, uh, yeah, yeah, agony to ecstasy in about 30, 30 seconds for the goal scorer. And that goal was a, an absolute disaster from a Bristol Rovers perspective. First, how open they were on the counter. Pritchard basically taking the ball 80 yards before uh, a good block sent it out for a corner. But then just no one getting back in position quick enough and uh, McConville making the most of that by, by clipping it in for, uh, for him to head home. I love that Seamus Keneally is still starting games for Accrington. Not that often. He's only asked to do sort of maybe 10 starts a season now, but he's been there for almost eight years. Uh, he's exactly the sort of player that most teams would look to move on, but not Accrington. And I, I dare say he has such a big impact off the pitch as well as when he does play. Um, but, you know, it's it's so Accrington this. they got like Doug Tharm and Ryan Astley at centre-back, a 23-year-old and a 20-year-old. They're on loan from Blackpool and Everton. They're both playing their first EFL season and they're growing into it. Um, Mitch Clark's probably been their best player this season, I'd say, at right-back. Um, gives them a bit of extra quality that that they don't always seem to have outside of just 
taking all those long shots that they love to do and, and peppering the goal from set pieces. And so a good few weeks for them. But but uh, Bristol Rovers are very interesting to me at the moment, George. I probably didn't realise or I wasn't as worried about them 24 hours ago as I am having done some more research for this podcast. Um, like Barton's front foot management, which we've spoken about before with some of the comments that he comes out with, very unusual, very pointed stuff, often about other teams and other managers that most managers don't bother with stuff that makes people very upset quite angry and leaves him as a very easy target when things don't go well such as um a spotty podcaster in a, in a small room taking the mick out of his comments about 442 you know that sort of thing we've we've always tried to make the point that when managers say stuff like that whether it's him ian Everett, whoever it is the goal is to motivate their team is not to create a headline or, or create some petty drama it's it, it the, the fundamental goal is to make their team feel a, a certain kind of way by speaking publicly. Um, and there's a famous one with Barton last season where Bristol Rovers didn't start the season well. They were in the bottom half. They kept failing to win and they went away somewhere and they didn't win and they were miles off it. And he's still adamant they'll get promoted and he's really strong about it. He says he's not worried at all. He'll have that team promoted in May. And everyone laughed at him because they were in the bottom half and they were looking sh- sh- uh, shabby, shoddy. Tried to mix shabby and shoddy there. Difficult. Mm-hmm. At seven months later, they got promoted and that clip becomes a famous, like a historic Bristol Rovers social clip because it's a way of showing that his words could motivate his players even when fans mock them. But then you do start to wonder, is he doing a little bit too much here? Is he trying to do too much? In terms of the style of play, he wants to be really ambitious with it. He's tweaking all the time. Now, there are injury reasons and personnel reasons for that, but there's quite a lot of tweaking and twisting and turning and kind of Pep Guardiola style stuff. And it's stuff that needs really good ball players and defenders who are happy to, to defend quite aggressively with a high line and, and happy defending space, basically. And I don't think they've got enough good ball players and I don't think they've got enough defenders happy defending space. So there's like one moment in this game, I watched the extended highlights. There's one moment where they play brilliant football through the thirds everything that Barton wants and it ends with Ryan Loft shooting wide from like 18 yards really good patterns to play but that was kind of it in terms of actually getting anything from that stuff and then one moment from a set piece they switch off and they lose so I just think 10 games into the season if there's going to be like a eureka moment where the penny drops and they start playing brilliantly in possession they tighten up at the back Barton needs that to be quite soon because they have played this is like the reverse of Argyle Bristol Rovers have played already this season Forest Green, Morecambe, Accrington, Shrewsbury and Lincoln at home. And they haven't won any of those games. They beat Oxford at the Mem, as you know. So they've played, oh, they've played six home games, five of them against the other 11 teams that we consider to be sort of lower half teams. Those are the 11 fixtures where a team like Bristol Rovers, whose objective should be to stay up, probability would dictate that's where they take the, the majority of their points at home to bottom half teams and they've already played half of them and they haven't won a single one so they have to improve massively they, they they're away games well they've lost to Ipswich Pompey Barnsley that's fine and then they thrash Burton when Burton had a man sent off in the first minute but I say all this to say I got some alarm bells when it comes to Bristol Rovers at the moment I mean it's hard not to I, I mean I do think We've seen this before with with Barton, and you know, even last season we saw it in League Two. Um, he's the kind of manager it feels like will uh, oversee periods of malaise and then oversee periods where things improve very uh, quickly. And um, yeah, I think at their, their current level they look very poor. 
but um, I wouldn't rule out Barton getting something of a reaction at some point. Anyone got Elliot Anderson's number? Because mm. that worked last January, didn't it? Uh, yes. Let's move into League Two, which went crazy for late goals, which was perfect. It was absolutely perfect for the weekend. We've got loads to talk about. I'm going to start with uh, the good cop, and I'm going to start at the top for good cop because history in the making at the top of League Two, Leighton Orient have amassed per opta 28 points after 10 games, a new record in the fourth tier of English football. No one's ever started a season this well. Leighton Orient wow. history makers, and they had one of their toughest tests yet, and they went to Barrow. And Barrow have been almost as good, if not quite as good as Leighton Orient this season. And in the 35th minute, Orient mustered their first shot. And it went in. <laughs> Full Smith put them ahead. And that's the sort of thing that's happening at the moment for Orient. And the thing is, once they go ahead, they really have been excellent. They went two ahead in the second half. Uh, Idris El Mizuni, or El Miz, Le Miz, as I like to call him. He's acceleration sk- from the lad. Yeah, skidded one in from range and hearing the people sing in the away end. Uh, and they were just very good here. You know, we are already running out of things to say about them every Monday because they've won nine games out of 10. Dale from the squad was at this game, just said so effective, very clear plan, can see why they do well, defend the box really well, especially uh, Dan Happer. And then, or Happy, and then a very good counter-attacking team as well. Smith, the standout, alongside Happy and Vigaru, top-tier distribution. George, they have been behind for a total of three minutes out of their 900 minutes this season. Just three minutes against Swindon, and then they were level. Uh, so there you go. That's good cop. Leighton Orient, history makers in League Two. Have you got a bad one? Yeah, bad cop of Gillingham, um, who we don't normally talk about jaws on this podcast, do we, Ali? But they were battered at Hartlepool. Um, Hartlepool playing for the first time under Keith Curl. Hartlepool, who've been very poor this season, um, were incredibly unfortunate not, not to win this game. They um, were the best side by miles. And for Gilliam, you know, the, the issue for me, they, you know, they had an expected goals uh, figure of, I think, 0.2 for the whole game. Uh, they didn't have a shot. They had a shot just after half time and didn't have another shot for the whole game. Um, Things are rancidly bad at Gillingham. And my con- biggest concern for them, you, know, you look at other teams who start the season poorly, you know, you look at whether it's Crawley, Rochdale, who've already made a change. You know, there are, there are things that those clubs can change. You know, there have to be big concerns about Kevin Betsy's time at Crawley at the moment, for example, um, whether he's the right man to take them forward. With Gillingham, it is impossible in my mind to see them making a better hire than Neil Harris. Like no matter because their squad is so poor and because of the you know the overall we've had to see in terms of, of player churn, I'm not massively downgrading Harris as a manager um, off the back of what's going on at Gillingham. They're, they're a bad team with a bad squad. Yes, maybe he, it's his fault they couldn't that they haven't recruited better, but they can't sack Robbie Stockdale and, and bring in a new. Um, a new manager in, in the style of Jim Bentley like that, that just can't happen um, they can sack Neil Harris but whoever they bring in it's hard to see that being a big improvement um, it's hard to see them investing a lot in January either so it kind of feels like I'm not going to say this, this is as good as it gets but unlike other clubs with Gillingham it feels like there isn't a great deal they can do to try and improve and given just how bad they are at the moment I am very very concerned for them um, it was a, a an important one uh, point that they won at Hartlepool, but they were not value for it at all. Is it lazy of me 
and wrong of me to say that I, and this isn't just this week, but over the summer, was getting big South End United vibes from Gillingham. Mm, that's fair. Totally fair. Okay. The good news is, George, Gillingham have scored two goals in 11 league games, not even in the relegation zone. How about that? We saw one of them as well against uh, yeah. against Grimsby. It's ter- terrible goal. Anyway, that was that nil nil. Hartley Pool Jills. Um, Northampton two, Stockport one. What you got to say for yourself, Alec? Eh? You took on Cobblers. You said they were overperforming their XG and it wouldn't continue. Well, guess what? John Brady's Cobblers marching on, giggling in the face of XG nerds. Yeah, fair enough. That was a you know going one 0 behind uh, to Stockport. They were pretty poor in the first half, um, but they you know were, were were very justified in getting their the two goals kept them to win the game. Hoskins with another amazing strike. What a season he is having at the moment. It's hard to imagine they're going to keep flying in at the rate they currently are. Um, but um, you know with with, with Coppers getting the points on the board there at the moment, uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, and yeah, they were the better team at one all and deserved their win entirely. Stockport have been. Pretty poor this season so far. Um, easy to forget that they were pre-season favourites to win the league. They're, you know, they're, they're in the bottom half of the table, comfortably in the bottom half of the table at the moment, without much sign of of improvement. So, um, yeah, but a big big win for Northampton. I still believe uh, probably both them and Orient are, are due a, a, a dip at some point. Um, you know, they, they seem to be the two sides at the moment where everything's going in. Uh, and that that can't last. And but then obviously the the performances could improve, in which case they can maintain that that level of form. Mm. But um, yeah, big big wins for both of them, and they're certainly yeah running on running on positive vibes at the moment. I always think it must be so boring how similarly I speak about Northampton Town wins basically for the last twelve months on this pod. But in my defence, Hoskins scoring a goal. And their other goal coming from a, a deep Mitch Pinnock corner that gets thumped in by a defender. Like, you know, it's one of the most repeatable and regular things yeah. that happens in the EFL. Unbelievable, really. Uh, Stockport, a uh, quirk of their season so far, four red cards, only two wins. Um, it'd be good to redress that balance at some point. Stevenage beat Harrogate means they're five out of five at home. Now, it was one of many late goals in League Two. Let's not frame this as like nicking a late winner though this might have been one of the most one-sided games that took place <laughs> this weekend um josh coley had a big chance for harrogate at nil nil stevenage giving the ball away at the back that'll teach them for playing tippy tappy at the back get it forward um but he missed it, it was a good save one-on-one good save and then stevenage it was the alamo it was the absolute alamo and it was pretty laughable that they didn't score before Sweeney scored a winner in injury time. If you watch the extended highlights, you'll see, you'll see this bizarre chance where Danny, uh, Danny Rose, like it's a sort of cross come shot which hits the post. So weird. Then hits the defender, then hits the bar, then looks like it's maybe over the line, but the keeper just about keeps it out. And then just after that, there's a set piece swung in. Harrogate don't fancy defending it, and Sweeney has an basically an open goal tap in six yard out and he just glitches and he just miscontrols it rather than shooting. Um, thankfully then made up for it with a thumping winner. Uh, another team who, unless something changes, it's going to find, I'm going to find it difficult to say new things about Stevenage because their games are following such a similar pattern at the moment and such an impressive one as well. Uh, I think they've got serious. Oh, here's something new I can say about Stevenage. Yeah. I think they've got serious Barnsley under Val Ishmael vibes. That's my take on them. They, Interesting. Yeah seriously intense style of direct play 
but getting loads from it. Like it's good attacking direct play, seriously intense press, basically have these like this whole unit that they bring off the bench in order to continue that level of intensity. I'm getting big Valish Malbansi vibes. So there you go. First time you've heard that. Quickly, given we've spoken about um, certain clubs' fixtures, I did. I had noticed, which I had noticed before, that Stevenage have had quite an easy draw so far, fair mm-hmm. to say. Um, their home games have been against <clears throat> um, Rochdale, Harrogate, Newport, Stockport, Carlisle. None of those, well, Carlisle are currently in the top half, none of the others are. Um, mm-hmm. And away games, Crew, uh, Tranmere, and Walsall. So basically, they've only played two teams who are currently in the top seven. Uh, those are Salford and uh, Bradford, and they lost those games 4-0 in ag- on aggregate. So might be a little bit of um, of bias towards who they played thus far. Good news for someone like yourself who thinks Mansfield are quite good and might do quite well and likes to tell us how hard their fixture list has been so far this season. Well, they went to Crew, didn't they? And it was a bitty game and it was a scrappy mm. game. And it burst into life on 70 minutes when Crew took the lead. And then it was a roller coaster ride at the home of the railway men. Is that, is that a thing? Yes. Roller coasters and railways. I, did, I guess the roller coasters do run on railways. So, just a th- yeah. Yeah. Why not? Okay. Um, to, to my notes here, I wrote Mansfield Hewitt goalie clearance, uh, which I think I meant to write goal line <laughs> for. Um, yeah, it was um, a. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a pretty scrappy game. I, I put Mansfield up in the betting show and, and it was a winner just, but certainly wasn't the kind of convincing performance I expected to see from them um, as we did the weekend before. Um, they were, you know, it was a game of, of pretty, of, of scarce chances, I would say. Not a great deal between the two sides. Um, Mansfield probably looking the likelier uh, to score before Crew actually did take the lead. Um, and, you know, then off the back of that, um, Mansfield started to, Put pressure on as we'd anticipate they would do, uh, throwing men forward, uh, fairly attritional stuff, and um, finally we've got a breakthrough with the with the equalising goal to make it one all uh, with not much longer, uh, you know, with, with five or so minutes left on the clock, and um, I'm guessing at that point Crew thought they were um, going to be unlucky to lose what they would have thought would be a deserved win, but um, yeah, Ollie Hawkins had different ideas uh, with a very late header in, in extra time and injury time to, to win the game, uh, and that was nearly. Not it, as I mentioned, with a crew sending men forward, even you know, with a, a minute left to go, and uh, Hewitt with an unbelievable kind of overhead kick, uh, clearing the ball off the line to, mm. to to keep the point safe. It's one of those games where I think if you're a crew fan, everything about it you're going to hate. You know, you're up against a, a an abrasive attritional side. You've taken the lead. You've conceded twice late. You've had a, a, a the ball cleared off the line. It's hard against a side who've been in great form as well. It's hard to really think of a worse way of losing a game. Um, but for Mansfield, there is massive belief there. And uh, yeah, as I said, if you're, I'm waiting for the for the drop off from from Cobblers and from um, from Leighton Orient, and, and I'm I'm not convinced that Mansfield, uh, uh, we can put them in that pile because their their form looks more sustainable to me. And their goals coming from a swan and a hawk, just an absolute twitch's paradise. That game, absolute twitch's paradise. Sutton one, Salford two. Talk about smash and grab. Red card. I'm stealing some content here from the Salford City forum on the uh, on the World Wide Web. Uh, but let me tell you first that uh, Sutton went one 0 up through Josh Neufill. Well, I don't need to tell you because you'll know this, but maybe the, the listener. Uh, and then with Sutton looking pretty good for it, uh, Donovan Wilson got himself into a scrap. Their striker. He got sent off. 
Didn't see why necessarily, uh, but everything quite changed. Weird, quite weird to see an off-the-ball scrap where one player's sent off and then no retribution for the other team. I'd love to know what he did. Might have kicked him. Yeah, you do that a lot you, by your own admission. Ah, oh, mate, I got pinned up against the railings at six aside last Wednesday by an angry you Italian told me. man. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's not important and that's not what we're here to talk about. But this is where I'm going to steal some content because uh, Sulphur came roaring back. Attacking changes from Neil Wood helped that. Odin Bailey came on. He was involved with the equaliser. Um, nice bit of awareness from Hendry to tee up Lund. I like that ball. I think he's had the most shots of any player in League Two. So amazing for the most shot-heavy person to actually feign a shot and just roll it left. Ah, nice. Uh, then Watson stroked home for the winner. Uh, on the Salford City Forum, a post by someone, <laughs> their, name, their name is Chris P. Bacon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I hope I never get too old for that sort of stuff. Anyway, Chris P. Bacon wrote on the Salford Fans Forum uh, a statement. Sutton Police have issued a statement after a serious mugging took place at the local football ground. A group of local males were mugged by some out-of-towners. A young lad dressed in a yellow jersey said, Me and the lads were just out for an afternoon of sport. We were coasting on a pitch without a care in the world, minding our own business and having no trouble at all. We'd seen a large group of males earlier in the afternoon, but they'd caused us no trouble, so we weren't worried. But just after one of our lads decided to go home early, they came from nowhere and attacked us. Sutton police said they were looking for 11 males who were mainly wearing red jerseys. They fear they may have now left town. They are asking local pawn shops to be on the lookout for stolen property, namely two late goals. Anyone with information should contact Sutton police. <laughs> Get Chris P. Bacon on the pod. That's what I say. Superb. Yeah, love good, it. Good. How about Salford then, George? Because I think they're good. I think they're definitely better than they've ever been before at League Two level. But I haven't worked out how good they are yet. And the fact that four of their wins this season have come with goals 83 minutes in or later makes me wonder if that's just going to dry up a bit. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think they are good. Um, I think they are definitely a work in progress. I think the, the recruitment from the summer looks very good. It looks like it was joined up thinking. You know, Hendry is someone who's only scored two goals so far, but I think that's going to change. He looks very lively up front. Uh, Elliot Watt is um, a player that I love, and I think he's made a very good start. You know, it feels like they, for the first time since they've been in the league, have worked out that going out and signing players who are in their 30s who who have championship contracts isn't necessarily the, the best way of going about things unless you're called George Moncur and you go to Lake Norin obviously where that seems to be working out pretty well but uh and Neil Wood you know I think it's early days but as ever with, with rookie managers you have to kind of look out for signs of, of of promise and certainly in the way that he sets his team up to play the way that he's able to been able to implement a style of football that's been pretty successful so far yeah, I think they look they look very good. It, it, at this stage, I wouldn't necessarily think Salford are going to go up this season, but I would say that it feels likely that Salford and, and Neil Wood together are going to be a partnership that probably do end up getting promoted to, to, to League One in the next two or three seasons. And, and that's got to be the aim. So, um, yeah, I'm impressed. And it, it feels like the, the start of a very good work in progress. Crawley Town were in the news for all the wrong reasons at the end of last week. Is this, uh, is this EFL years? <laughs> off the field, their scouting team were heading to Charlton to scout some YouTube footballers. But on it, their actual football team, the professional football team, crawled their way up to Doncaster and stumbled home having lost 4-1. George, tell me about Doncaster 4, Crawley Town 1. What's there to say? Uh, Crawley, again, 
just being very poor. Um, they are, are a side who have no real redeeming features at the moment. They are not particularly good at the back. They don't create much going forward, apart from you know James Tilly seems to be their only outlet of, of goals that doesn't happen too often. Uh, he did score the goal to make it one all here. It was it was a it was basically a drab. I, I put it under two and a half goals, and after forty minutes, I thought there was no way the bet was going to lose because there had been nothing had happened, and suddenly. Um, Donny take the lead to make it 1-0 uh, Tilly equalises to make it 1-0 two minutes later and it's 1-0 going into half time but second half Crawley didn't really show up Donny were, were dominant the best, their best performance uh, we've seen after that kind of blip in uh, in the last few weeks but similarly they were playing against a side in Crawley who mm. don't really offer any issues uh, I really I like have, the fourth liked, goal it was a, a, a great run and finish by <laughs> sorry a uh, great run and finish by Carl Hurst mm. um, but I kind of felt like Crawley had already given up a bit so yeah, I mean, a big three points and a good win for them, but uh, but Crawley are just abject. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen how the last half an hour would have played out had that ransom handball either not happened or not been given. Because mm. I don't think Donny were exactly peppering the Crawley goal at 1-1. It felt to me like the goal that made it 2-1, which is the most important goal in the game really at that point, uh, was fortunate for Doncaster, but also... Crawley just crumbled after that as soon as it was 2-1 that was that really and we saw that with with Miller's goal and, and that absolute treat of a solo run from Carl Hurst um, to make it 4-1 so good for Donny to get back to winning ways but I think we're both going to want to see a lot more from them in the coming weeks before we, we start getting excited again uh, how about Swindon Town though away at Grimsby 2-1 winners bam 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 three wins in a row for Swindon Town uh, having gone five draws and one win in their six previous games. So nine unbeaten, four wins, five draws. My main analysis here is that I'm really pleased with Scott Lindsay because he seems like a, a cracking bloke. And he was, as discussed, maybe two or three weeks ago on the Monday pod, already coming in for the sort of quite tedious criticism that he was a cheap option and blah, 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 blah. And, mm. uh, and now they've cranked out three wins in a row, including a, a great away day win up at Grimsby uh, without Louis Reed, who was absent for this one. Khan in the deepest midfield role uh, and Gladwin and Darcy, probably their star men breaking forward from central midfield to great effect and Gladwin squaring it for Darcy for the winning goal as well. Others to thank, though, wasn't easy for them. Sol Brin in goal made two huge saves. Uh, Romeo Hutton had one off the line as well. So every chance that the scoreline could have, have been very different here. I don't think this was a sensational away performance necessarily but at the moment you're impressed with what you've seen from the last week few weeks for Swindon it's a it's it's a bit of development and it's a bit of confidence in what is a very young team Uh, I want to see them be a little bit sturdier seeing it out but for the moment I'm just going to enjoy three wins in a row I reckon so congratulations to Swindon I've got a a quirk quirk alert courtesy of Richard a Swindon fan from NTG20 squad today was the fourth Swindon game with a red card this season, two for us, two for opponents, all with significant time on the clock. And the team that's finished with 11 players haven't won any of the four matches. Ah, wow. Walsall nil, Tranmere won. George last Tranmere away win against Salford. The perfect away performance. This was not necessarily that, but the same outcome. <laughs> this is smashy and grabby. This is <laughs> as, as smashy and grabby as it gets and fair play to Tranmere. Um, because, I mean, Walsall are probably the... One of the most baffling teams currently in um, in League Two, where their performance levels, um, you know, they seem to lose matches regardless of what they do. Um, they've put in plenty of good performances this season, and I would put this as being one of them. Um, but they seem they have a real issue with putting the ball in the back of the net. 
feels like Danny Johnson might have used up all of his um, all of his lives early on in the season. Um, because again, here they created the better chances. They were the better side pretty much throughout the whole game. Um, Tramir, to be fair to them, had had enough as well, especially in the second half. Um, a couple of, of, of opportunities where they didn't get shots off. You know, one of those balls being rolled across the box with stretched stretched out legs that don't connect that you don't see on your XG graphs. Um, but uh, yeah, the, a, a brilliant winner for Nevitt very late on um, to get the three points and to crown what's been a, a brilliant week for them. Um, you know, it's been a difficult start to the season on the pitch. James Vaughan leaving uh, their sporting director a couple of weeks ago wasn't ideal either. Um, some criticism from Mickey Mellon from some spotty podcasters as well, sitting in their sitting in their bedrooms. So uh, yeah, a, a big week for them to um, to put it right. I can't believe I've just given us both acne. Over- <laughs> I'd say neither of us got that many spots, personally. No. You know, if, I, if, I, if I came and met you and you had a massive spot, spot on your nose, I'd be like, oh, you got a spot. But I think that's why I'm so secure saying it, because there are many things you could say about me that would probably hit a bit too close to home, but that's just not one of them. So there you go. Also, n- nothing wrong with having spots. Anyone at home who does, you're beautiful. I know. I could not agree more. Uh, Simeu, the Tramir centre-back, is getting a lot of love recently for his skincare and also for his defensive actions. <laughs> Uh, as are the, the fullbacks, Bristow and Dakers Cogley, probably Tramir's two best players this season. Um, but but you're probably right that Walsall are, are the more interesting team to discuss for a pod discussion. I, I don't know about you, I'm getting a serious sense of here we go again for like the fourth or fifth or maybe sixth season in a row with Walsall ever since we've done... You know, the season before we started the pod, they were really good and made the playoffs under Dean Smith. Mm. And they had really cool players like Sawyers and Bradshaw and tons of others I've probably forgot, and Rico Henry. And we missed that. And then since then, just just a, a sort of huge decline. Well, actually quite a slow decline, but a comprehensive decline. Um, and, and this feels similar to all the other years, basically, sort of interest and enthusiasm levels rising over the summer with signings being made. And then 10 games in, a realisation that things are average at best, at mediocre at worst, and, and frustration setting in. There are, you know, underlying numbers quirks to this, that the fact that their XG is very, very good, their goals return much less good. Um, I turn to Matt, who's the most level-headed, sort of shrewd fan you could get, really, he's on NTT20 squad. He started just like, not aggressively, but just questioning some of Flynn's uh, decisions a week or two ago. That certainly made me sit up and take note of the situation. I think my instinct was... I'm not sure Flynn is the, is the key problem here or that changing things is likely to solve whatever problems there are at Walsall. And in fairness, Matt wrote a big message this morning on the NTT20 squad. And I think it seems like he kind of agrees. He, he brings up some interesting points and conclusions, which I'll share. Um, he said in Flynn's defence, he hasn't had much luck. Half his starting 11 are crocked. It meant that the 3-5-2 he recruited for either sees square pegs in round holes or getting shelled altogether. Add in the late goals, the last minute plug pulling on a permanent DJ deal and then on the Harry Smith loan. It's no wonder he's fed up. He's also had just six months to try and turn around the fortunes of a club who have had a decade of poor decisions and neglect. We've also lost games where we at least deserve to draw, conceding four or five late goals and a penalty miss have been very costly. So there's a lot of sort of on the margins, bad luck type stuff. On the other hand, just quickly, Matt says, He's also not getting any kind of tune with what he is working with. The last six weeks of recruitment was a bit of a panicked scramble. Results and performances have been pretty dismal. I can see why some fans are annoyed. Preseason was full of promise. We sold the most season tickets since 2004. And if you missed the first game where they thrashed, I think it was Hartlepool, like me, it's been pretty rubbish to watch. Most of the frustration isn't necessarily on Flynn. It's on the back of six years of dross. 
you mentioned there the the underlying data so i'm not going to go into that but it is good but but on a pure like results level since that 4-0 win on opening day against Hartlepool they've played nine games they've lost they've lost five of those games all five defeats have been by a single goal right so they've lost 1-0 to Leighton Orient who are top of the league they lost 2-1 at Barrow who are fourth in the league they lost 2-1 at Bradford who are seventh in the league and then at home they've been beaten 1-0 and 2-1 against Grimsby and, and, and Tranmere so all five defeats marginal defeats you've got three draws in there Stevenage at home who are third Colchester won all her 21st and Gillingham 0-0, uh, the one that will really rankle um, away from home her 20th. Um, again, all three of those games, well, apart from the Stevenage one actually, but both the two of those games, um, they were, as Matt says there, kind of deserving of more. And then the one other victory was a 1-0 win over Newport. So I'm feeling positive these f- now. These are fine margins, basically. You know, these are fine margins where they are they are not being blitzed by, by sides. No team they've played so far has, you know, outclassed them massively but the coin is landing on tails and they're calling heads fairly consistently but I, I have I have much more faith in in Walsall if you look at the bottom half of the table now um, you know Sutton and Walsall would be the two that I'm I'm pretty confident are gonna gonna improve from here definitely better than 15th possibly not any better than like 10th so it's you know still not that exciting I think they could be better than 10th we'll see yeah better than Grimsby yeah, what Maybe. Don't, maybe. Tell you, don't tell your in-laws that. Um, <laughs> Colchester nil, Rochdale won. This was a significant game in that. It was Cole Hughes' first game post Wayne Brown, and they lost it. Uh, Steve Ball, who was mentioned on last week's pod as being one of their former internal appointments, is, is still with the club as a, as a director. Uh, he's taken over interim charge. That was not a very popular decision from the fans. The, the statement from the club suggested that they are taking external uh, candidates somewhat more seriously than they may have done in the last 10 years, but uh, the proof will be in the pudding. Uh, and they lost to Rochdale, and that meant that it was uh, Jim Bentley's first win as Rochdale manager in the league, uh, Rochdale's first win of the season, which means it's only Hartlepool and Coventry City now in the EFL that haven't tasted the sweet nectar of victory. Uh, and it was Jim Bentley's first win as an EFL manager since winning away at that very ground in Colchester with Morecambe in October 2019. So just under three years, he's waited for another three points in the EFL. And he absolutely loved it. And he was talking about getting the beers in on the on the bus home. And that's that's why I would like to play for Jim Bentley, personally. But the game itself was about as bad, I would say, as EFL football gets in terms of quality, excitement. Um, and it was just very simply a tale of two penalties and two goalkeepers. Um, Kieran O'Hara, oh dear. Dropped the ball, fouled the striker, conceded the penalty. And then Richard O'Donnell, oh wow. Penalty to Colchester in injury time. O'Donnell's hands are freezing cold because he hadn't faced a shot on target all game. Didn't matter to him. Got down low to push Sears' penalty away and win the game. So big for Rochdale from a points perspective, but both teams still playing quite poorly. Colchester with a with a uh, an appointment to make, and then a couple of draws. Bradford and Wimbledon drew two two. One of the many last gasp goals. This one for Bradford to avoid defeat. There seemed like more positive signs from Wimbledon. We were a bit down on them last week, but uh, better better by all accounts. We'll see how that develops. Uh, Newport and Carlisle drew uh, one each there, and that brings us to an end. George, a reduced docket, but if anything, an increase in our love for this football and this each pop- other. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. I've loved it. 
no reduction in the drama of these beautiful leagues hopefully you've enjoyed it as well listener we value you very much thank you for listening to us witter on uh, we appreciate it uh, we hope that you've enjoyed it and, and we hope that you might give it a share on social media if you do in case we can attract some new listeners uh, many thanks to our sponsors betfair as well for their continued support of this podcast we'll be back again on thursday with a betting show ahead of a throbbing docket full slate and other terms of that nature and we're very excited about it have a great week and go well